Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, this week we had a conversation with the Minister of Post-Secondary Education, Training and Labor in New Brunswick, uh, Arlene Dunn, and her Deputy Minister, Dan Mills, about what the department is doing to address many of the workforce shortages and challenges that we're facing as a consequence of growth here uh, in the province of New Brunswick. I think it's a wide-ranging discussion, a little bit longer than we're used to, but I think a lot of good insight here for, for people interested in this topic. I just want to start off by saying it's been a long time that I've been as impressed with a, a, a political um, minister and uh, her deputy. Uh, they very articulate, uh, well-informed, thoughtful, uh, and prepared with the, with the right information to, uh, to answer the kinds of questions that we had. They were very, very impressive, both of them. It's a very interesting conversation. And, you know, you come away with a lot more confidence about what's going on uh, within the government of New Brunswick to deal with labor, uh, labor shortages. So this is an interesting conversation that I really encourage people to pay attention to. And, and part of the reason, by the way, is that Arlene Dunn has an amazing background in this fair field. She is well uh, prepared for her role. She's been a, not only a union leader, but she's worked for one of the biggest uh, companies in the world, Exxon. And, and she, she has tremendous experience when it comes to the skilled trades, which is really a challenge, uh, especially in the housing uh, market. So she is very well uh, qualified for this role. And I, I think the audience will get a lot out of this conversation, a lot of great ideas. Yeah, I agree with you. I was not aware of her backstory. It is very, very impressive what she's been able to do. And Dan is one of the more impressive deputy ministers as well. We get into a wide range of issues from the construction trades to international students to how we keep newcomers when they arrive. We talk a lot about their forecast of 133,000 new jobs coming available over the next decade. So as, as, as I agree with you, lots of good uh, meat in here that uh, people should pay attention to. And, and, you know, just on one on one question, like, you know, uh, we asked about the strategies to increase nurses. He didn't have one idea. He had he had a dozen that they're working on, like like very impressive. And one other thing that he teased us with a couple of things that I think we might be seeing from the provincial government. One deals with, uh, you know, it comes at the end of the conversation, but one deals with how do we ensure that uh you know, people coming here with uh, foreign credentials get qualified. And the other one is uh, helping people settle. Uh, and and you want to you want to listen to those ideas at the end of the uh, conversation. So, with any uh, without any further ado, here's our conversation with Minister Arlene Dunn and Dan Mills. Welcome to the Insights Podcast. It's great to have you both on. Before we start talking about how we address workforce demand in the coming years, I guess we'd like to start by giving our listeners a sense of your background. Maybe we could start with you, Minister Dunn. Tell us where you were born and the path that ultimately led you to become the Minister of Post-Secondary Education, Training and Labour. Absolutely. Well, thanks for the opportunity for having me on today. I really appreciate it. I was born in Woodstock, New Brunswick, and I moved to St. John to uh, pursue my education with the University of New Brunswick. And following that, I actually received a job um, with one of the unions here locally in St. John. And I worked there for 25 years running a union. And from there, um, after representing workers for over 25 years, I decided that I would move to the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I received a wonderful opportunity from the Hebron Project Employers Association 
to move over there and work for ExxonMobil and, and run the Employers Association on behalf of the project that was going on at the time, which was a $14 billion oil platform build. So it was quite exciting for me. I wanted to see that other um, opportunity in terms of what does, what does labor relations look like on the owner and the employer side after 25 years of representing workers? So I had that great opportunity in Newfoundland. And then ironically, um, the individual who was running the building trades over there, which was about 20,000 members at the time, 16 international unions asked if I would come and go back to the worker side of things and run the Newfoundland and Labrador building trades. So I did that for a while, and then a job came up in Ottawa for the Deputy Director of Canada's Building Trades Unions. I applied for the job and I got it. So I moved to Ottawa, eventually becoming the Director of Canada's Building Trades Unions, representing over 800,000 skilled trades workers in Canada. And then I decided to open up my own labor relations company after traveling um, all over the place for over 200 days a year. And I said, it's time for me to go home. And I still had a house in New Brunswick and I decided to open up my own labor relations company, which I did. And ironically, my first job was working for one of the local unions in Newfoundland and Labrador for the Muskrat Falls project. So from there, I was approached by the PC party here in St. John to see if I would have an interest in running for the riding of St. John Harbor. And I did that. So uh, lo and behold, I was successful and now representing the, ri the riding of St. John Harbor and very pleased to do so. And also very pleased with the portfolios that I have. I'm certainly enjoying a new one, which is post-secondary education, training and labor. And now, of course, um, I also have the immigration portfolio, which has been moved over from Opportunities New Brunswick. Really enjoying that one as well. And of course, the Aboriginal Affairs file is always great. So I really appreciate this opportunity and also um, especially to talk about the skilled trades because I spent over 30 years in that industry. No, we really appreciate you coming on. Dan, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? What's your backstory? Yeah, sure, David. David, I'm going to point out the minister's being humble, but I'm pretty sure she's the first female president of Canada's building trades, which is quite an accomplishment <laughs> in that construction world where there's not a lot of ladies. Uh, so kudos to her for that. Um, so thanks thanks for having me, David. Yeah, quickly, I was born in Inuvik, Northwest Territories of all places. I'm kind of proud. That's my claim to fame. I have a Northwest Territories birth certificate. And my parents were up there looking for work. They both come from New Brunswick. They worked in a hospital and uh, had a couple kids there and came back and had a couple kids in St. John. So I grew up in St. John for the most part. Went to UMBSJ for my first year, then went to UMB Fredericton for my subsequent year, sort of as I was doing my bachelor's degree. And as part of that, I got an internship in 1997 with the Department of Natural Resources in parks and natural areas. I was doing a degree with a major in recreation administration, a phys ed degree back in the day. And uh, so I did an internship in April of 1997 at Natural Resources up the hill from my office here in Fredericton. And uh, I never, I haven't left GMB since. I've been an employee of some form or fashion with GMB since 1997. I've been through Parks, Crown Lands, Tourism, did stint in corporate services like HR Finance, IT, then Apprenticeship, then Energy and Mines, and then I've been kicking around at Pedal for 13 or 14 years in different roles, but both uh, Director, Assistant Deputy, and then Deputy Minister about three and a half years ago, and that was all 26 years now of GNB. It's been, it's been, I've had a great time. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for that, uh, giving us our listeners the backstory there. Before I flip it to Don to start asking questions, I just wanted to tee things up for us. This is an interesting and exciting time in New Brunswick. We've seen record population growth. The economy has come back. It's not back to pre-pandemic GDP growth, but it is growing again. 
employment is growing. We had a record 402,000 employed during an average month in 2022. But this has come with some concerns. We've got uh, uh, more vacancies across a number of sectors. The job vacancy survey by Stats Canada showed uh, 50% more in the second quarter of 2023 compared to the pre-pandemic second quarter of 2019. And wages on offer for vacant jobs are up 31% of the same time frame. So we want to talk to you today about what you're seeing and then specifically what you're doing to try and help address this and make sure we have enough workers to meet workforce demand now and into the future. And with that, I'll flip it over to Don to start uh, with the first questions. Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, you know, we want to start with your workforce projections. Obviously, uh, without those projections, you really don't know <laughs> what you need to do. Your department recently released this labor market outlook uh, from uh, 2023 to 2032. Um, the forecast is that there will be over 130,000 job openings over that decade, of which about 35,000 will come from new jobs, and uh, you know the rest, 98,000, will be for replacing the aging workforce uh, side of things, which is uh, a problem right across the country, as you know. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you were able to develop this forecast, if you could. Yeah, thanks, Don. Maybe I'll take a crack at this one, Minister, and if you've got any thoughts. But we, uh, we've we used the same group. I think they've changed their names a few times, but lately it's called Stokes Economics. And uh, there's a guy actually named Ernie Stokes who, who developed some of this back in the day. This is our third, in my time, third or fourth round. So I remember, Don, when that forecast said the number of job openings over the next 10 years would be 108,000. And then I remember when it was 112. I remember when it was 118. I remember when it was 120. I remember when we didn't publish it, but it was 127,000. And the most recent is 133,000. So their model takes, takes into account demographics, the economy, the labor market, and, and it's, uh, I can't explain the technicalities of it, but it pulls all those pieces together and comes up with a forecast based on a number of things. And I'll give you a couple of examples of, of, of um, what's, uh, what I find interesting about it. So in our last round of the forecast, it predicted a shrinkage in the education, in jobs, job openings in the education sector, rightfully so. Generally, every year in New Brunswick, we, we graduate fewer grade 12 kids than we did the year before, and that's been the trend for the last 30 years. Uh, so it, it predicted a shrinkage in the education sector, fewer kids, fewer teachers, just broadly speaking. The most recent one, the 133,000, actually projects an expansion in the education sector because the average age is down, the number of youth is up for the first time since the 1970s, so rightfully so, more kids, more teachers. So it's interesting that the model has picked up on that. Same thing with one other example, with healthcare, it picks up on the demographics. So it can, every time we get an update, it, it predicts greater demand in the healthcare and social services sector because of the aging workforce, the aging demographic, the aging population and the services that they're gonna need. So every time it's picked up on, a, on an expansion in that sector and up until now, it had been picking up on a shrinkage in education, and now it's predicting a, an expansion in education, which I find interesting. That's really interesting, Dan. And I would just add to that. So on Monday, we actually had a meeting as government talking about some of these new schools that we're announcing. 
and we're actually already behind in terms of building that capacity. So as we build these new schools, we're finding that we, we actually require more to be built. So it's a great problem to have because of the population growth. And we know many of the immigrant families, they actually tend to have larger families, uh, typically than what we would see in North America, which is, which is great. It's great for the province, but there's always a challenge with respect to keeping up, whether it's housing or whether it's an education, but it's a, it's a great dynamic and, and a good problem to have. Uh, Minister, I, you know, I, I'm going to ask you a political question, if you don't mind, because, sure. you know, uh, David and I have spent virtually our whole working uh, careers looking at the economy and looking at population, looking at demographics. You know, we find ourselves in a period of labor shortage that was predictable literally decades ago. Like this is not a, this is not for David and I, we knew that there would be an aging workforce at this time of our you know, life and that uh, there would be more people leaving the workforce than entering the workforce. And you have people like Dan, uh, you know, working as deputy ministers who are who are providing this information basically to the political side, you know, and, and, and like like I just they just can't believe that we find ourselves with labor shortages. This was completely predictable decades ago. And, and you may not want to answer this. And that's OK. But, you know, my, my problem is that the political side of things only looks in four year cycles. Right. And they don't look at the longer term picture. A lot of this you know, problem with labor shortages could have easily been predictable. Why are we out of doctors? Well, you know, a whole bunch are going to retire because they're aging out. Like, you know, that was known decades ago. You know, it's not a surprise that we're short doctors and nurses and truck drivers. It, it, it's, it's, it's been predictable for a long time. What needs to be done from the political side to actually take advantage of the kind of work that Dan and his people are doing to make these projections about labor requirements and, 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 and making sure that we've got enough people to fill those jobs? So, Don, I think it's a valid question, and I'm happy to answer it. So the sector that I come from, which is the skilled trade sector, eight years ago, we were predicting 250,000 skilled trade shortage over the next 10 years. And hmm. I, I believe, uh, to your point, if anyone's paying attention to this stuff, we've known this, uh, we were going to get to this juncture. It's no surprise. We've got an aging demographic, to your point. I think we need to make sure that we develop good policies. And you know, anyone who's out there now looking at what's happening with respect to population growth would know that we should have embraced immigration a long time ago. And I think that governments needed to do that many, many years ago uh, to prepare for what we're now seeing today. And of course, we have a lot of eggs in that basket now. But I think if we would have been looking at those policies and shaping better policies around not just immigration, but also marginalized groups, you know, and we have a tendency and, you know, once again, in the skilled trades, for an example, our focus was around, around women in trades. We need to make sure that we have good policies to support the individuals that we're trying to attract, whether it's women, whether it's marginalized groups, whether it's persons with disabilities, whether it's First Nations populations. I think good policy, having the foresight to listen to folks like you and prepare for what you're telling us is something that's coming is also really important. And of course, the people that we have working within government in the civil service, they're the ones that are doing the work every day. They see things you know, potentially before most people see them. And I think it's really imperative for governments to listen to those folks and work with them collaboratively, collaboratively to make sure that we're prepared for what's to come based upon the information that they're presenting to us. But I think at the forefront, we have to have good policy and it has to be tied and aligned to foresight and good governance 
and people who are open to preparing for what's to come. And sometimes that has pains with it, politically speaking. Um, and if you look at the immigration piece, for an example, you know, people need to understand that, you know, there's, there's situations where if we didn't have newcomers in this province working, then sectors would not be flourishing to the extent where we wouldn't have our crops, you know, essentially growing and food supply. It has an impact on everything. And I think that we as a population need to make sure that we're supporting good policy and making sure that we're supporting what's required. And sometimes that takes tough political decisions because you're going against potentially the grain of what the public think. But there's also an education piece to this that's imperative. Yeah. Arlene, I, I have to tell you that uh, you may not know this, and, uh, but like I spent at least the last 25 years of my uh, uh, working career with uh, the company I founded uh, that was a market research company talking to governments across Atlantic Canada, including a newly elected Higgs government. I remember attending a session in St. Andrews where you did your initial planning as a government talking about immigration, talking about demographics, you know, again, those were all, these were themes that most governments in, in Atlantic Canada heard, for me at least, for at least 20 years or more, you know, and and, and the frustration that I have, and, and I'm sure many listeners have, is that, you know, a lot of these things could have been anticipated. It's not just the last eight years. It, you know, it was actually decades of knowing where the population demographics are going to go and and to find it's like oh we're surprised that we have so many people retiring from the workplace well you know it's not a surprise for for those of us who follow those things and i think don to your point the first thing that we need to say is we're not surprised you're absolutely right yeah <laughs> don don if i could just jump in because i i joined government in 2015 and one of my favorite deputies was or at the time i think you were adm dan but I think there was a lack of ambition back then in government at the political level, maybe, but certainly at the bureaucratic level, like the Department of Finance was projecting long term economic stagnation and population decline back then. And I came in and I said, well, what, don't you understand the implications of this if we do continue on this downward trajectory? So at least the government today, it seems, has figured that out and is sort of pushing on the immigration yeah. file, is trying to drive up population and workforce. So it seems there's more ambition today, and maybe we'll get to talk a little bit later today about are we investing properly to support that growth, but the, that definitely seems to be more ambition at the bureaucratic and political level, I think. In oh, and I would agree with that, David. I mean, you know, uh, we, we, we actually saw it first happen, and, and both David and I have written about this, that, you know, PEI was really the early leader when it came to immigration, and they demonstrated the value of that, and then the other... The other governments followed. Newfoundland was the last of the party, and you know they're trailing uh, as a result of their slowness off the mark. But I want to get back to the forecast for a second. I, I didn't mean to go off on a little rant, but you know, I, you gave me the opportunity. So. <laughs> the Maybe can I, can I add to your rant just a little bit? Because I do remember. I remember my university days reading Boom Bust and Echo. David Poy exactly predicted exactly. all this. I think it was 1995, 94, something like that. But but I think to, to everyone's credit, the elected officials represent the public. And it's just you have the same challenge with the public. It's hard for them to think 30 years out kind yeah. of thing when they have immediate needs and immediate challenges and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, the elected officials do represent the public regardless of the party um, over the years. So you're getting some of some of the public's influence over, you know, the long, long term plans, the 10, 20 
30 yep. plans. And we, we always joke, you know, there's, there's, if you want, like there are, in, there are jurisdictions in the world that have hundred year plans and, you know, they have a little different governance and setup and that sort of thing. And then we've got democracy, Western democracy. And when you weigh the two, I'm okay with the Western democracy. You know, it's not perfect, but the, the alternative, I'm not sure if I want a dictator telling me how we're going to go for the next hundred years kind of thing. So, um, but I will, but I want to give credit to something that's happened over the last, in, just in my time, we have all, we do all kinds of things with all kinds of groups, associations, non-for-profits, for-profits, uh, regulatory bodies, all things. And we tend, government writ large, in my experience, last 25 years, tend to do that one year at a time. So, oh, so-and-so, you have a great idea. Well, I'll give you money until, until March 31st of next year and make that happen. And they just get rolling. And then March, April rolls along. And they're like, uh, are we going to do this again next year? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do it for one more year and see what happens. I have a lot of examples, a lot of examples of partnerships, 30-year partnerships, one year at a time. Yeah. 30 years, yeah. one year at a time. And all these organizations are constantly, they never hire anyone permanently. They lose people all the time. They're in a constant training mode, a constant orientation mode, a constant transition mode. So in the last number of years, and I can give you, I can't give you hundreds of examples, but I can give you dozens of examples where we've signed five and 10 year agreements with various bodies, universities, colleges, non-for-profits, associations, because I think the public and the elected officials have said, this is crazy. Why would we have a 30-year partnership one year at a time? Why don't you call a spade a spade and say, yeah, we're in for 10 years and we might renew for five. Let's get rolling. Let's get good. Let's let you do your job and carry on. So I just want to point yeah. out because they're- No, that's that's a great to learn point. as a society yeah. on some of that. I think the other point that's really imperative for us to think about is no one predicted a pandemic. That really changed the water on the beans for a whole pile of reasons. And we're even seeing now a workforce that typically, in some particular instances, don't want to go back to that traditional sort of setup um, that they were accustomed to before COVID. So I think that needs to be something that we consider as well in terms of when governments come together and they formulate their plans. This was the kind of thing that nobody predicted would ever happen. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, you, you make uh, some good points. I want to get back to your forecast for a second. You know, the forecast indicates that uh, just about half of those jobs that you need will come from young New Brunswickers, uh, you know, coming up through the system. <clears throat> so I guess the question is, <clears throat> where were the other 61,000 workers that you need going to come from? Yeah, so combination of things, uh, Don, in terms of where they're going to come from. And we've had this discussion numerous times. So one example, people with disabilities, unfortunately, are very underrepresented in the workforce. Their unemployment rates are, very, are much higher than, than someone without a disability. So there's a huge opportunity for people with disabilities. The First Nations communities in New Brunswick are one of the few that tend to be growing their youth population. Incredible opportunities there. Uh, there are people who've, and we, we could dig into the details, but there are tens of thousands of people in New Brunswick who've never worked, who are working age. So how do we engage? How do we engage them in the labor market? How do we encourage them to get into the labor market? Uh, newcomers, obviously, we've we touched on that already. Huge opportunities there, and we've seen exponential growth in our in newcomers. Don, you point out Newfoundland's a little bit late to the game, and they've they've I've talked to Newfoundland at the official level, and they've. They're coming to us looking for some suggestions about what are you doing in New Brunswick because we're we're going to catch up. Uh, so obviously newcomers, 
Um, and I'm trying to think. And then there are some there are some underrepresented areas. You know, again, we still to this day, despite, you know, the progress we made, we don't have a lot of male nurses. We don't have a lot of female truck drivers. We don't have a lot of women in the trades. We don't have a lot of minorities in particular uh, tend to be very underrepresented in the skilled trades. So there's opportunities to, to restructure some of some of what we do across the board. But um, a good mix of, of all sorts of people. Yeah, I guess my last one would be those folks who I said, you know, haven't been in the labor market, but we do have stay-at-home parents. We do have folks for a variety of reasons that haven't participated. So what can we do to help them? And in my experience, there are tons of financial resources to help people uh, pursue a post-secondary education of a variety of kinds to, to get in the labor market. It's really a cultural thing, a social thing, uh, a desire thing, whether whether they participate or not. So. I think the other opportunity I would say, Dan, is a retiree group, and we're seeing that more and more. So in my riding in St. John Harbor, for an example, I'll have retirees reach out on a regular, on a regular basis to say, is there something that we can do for you? Can we come and volunteer? Can we, you know, can we maybe look at two or three hours a day or a week? But I think that, the, you know, that group to me is an untapped resource particularly when I look at the construction industry, because maybe somebody who's been, I don't know, a plumber or pipe fitter for 40 years of his life may not want to go back on the tools, but guess what? He has all that historical knowledge and all that, you know, that built up information that he can pass on to the next generation, whether it be as a superintendent or what have you. And we're seeing this within the retiree community. We have a brain trust there that we haven't tapped into and we have people who want to come back. And I think that they, they also provide an opportunity for uh, younger people to interact with that demographic, which I find is imperative. Uh, not, you know, for a whole pile of reasons. It's all very positive. And I th- think that that's a group that we really need to start looking at. And I know, Dan, our department's doing some of that work right now and trying to entice people that are retired to come back and consider coming back to the workforce. Yeah, we've had some great, great examples of that, Minister. Just two, two, Don. One is um, veteran nurses who maybe are, you know, done with the shift work, the the nights, the weekends, the frontline stuff, but they're willing to mentor the next round of nurses. So there's a couple, there's some, there's some efforts underway in the health authorities to, to do that. And then, as the Minister said, some, some older workers. I use my dad as an example. He's seventy two or three or four or something like that, but he's a tour guide on the pink buses in St. John. <laughs> come in. And he's, unlike a student, he's available right now when the cruise ships are here. So he and all his fellow senior citizens are running that whole industry on the on the port in St. John and taking people all the way to the Fundy Trail Parkway. And without them, I don't know who they'd have doing that. So I, I just have a, a suggestion on that on that theme. I, I think that's a great idea, by the way. And so, you know, uh, quite often people, since I sold my company, they said, well, how are you enjoying retirement? And I said, uh, I'm not retired. I'm repurposed. I'm repurposed in life. And 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 believe me, the baby boom generation, just so you know, uh, you have this desire for not not everybody, but a lot of them of continuing to be useful. And so I think you're on to something, Minister, and I want to encourage you to continue on that track. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, uh, you know, not that long ago, your department uh, was obviously not as bullish about uh, workforce growth. And we and I, I wrote a, a column on this not that long ago that showed that, you know, we've created a lot of new jobs across the region. I think uh, the number was like 90,000 new jobs over the last five years, net new full-time jobs. That hasn't happened in this region forever, you know. So 
something something real is happening here. In fact, you know, David and I are so optimistic about the future. We're actually trying to write a book about it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I guess the question is, I'd like your opinion about what has changed in, in New, Brun- New, New Brunswick specifically that uh, has made your department uh, more bullish. Minister, you want you want to go on this one or? Well, maybe I'll let you start so you can give the historical perspective with regards sure. to the department, and then I'll chime in. Yeah, and I've I've got Don, I've got labor force numbers right here in front of me. Your listeners won't be able to see it, but I've got the slide here in front of me. And yeah, um, I've got 402,500 402, people um, in as the total labor force in New Brunswick, and I know that's out of date. When we, when my team here looks at it, it's more like 410, 415, 420, depending on the month and that sort of thing. So it's really fantastic. And when you look back, that's in my career, that's as high as it's ever been. I've been around 26 years or so. So um, something obviously has changed. The minister alluded to the pandemic. No one predicted that, but I think there, there's a pandemic effect where people have have seen a, an incredible attraction to Atlanta, Canada, and New Brunswick in particular and are moving our net uh, for the first time. And, and again, we've got these, but it's great. Like it's, it's fascinating to look at them for the first time. And I don't know how long we have a net interprovincial migration over Alberta. Like we ship people to Alberta for 20, 30 years. And the last couple of years, we have a net improvement in people. We bring more people from Alberta than we send. And, and it's only in the hundreds or thousands, but on in Ontario, it's, it's over 10,000. Um, plus the immigration numbers. So we've added, we joke around here, you know, we've added, we've added a city of Fredericton to New Brunswick across the whole province, but we've added a city of Fredericton. So um, partly pandemic, partly David, you know, you talked about some, I think sort of pride of place and pride in the civil service and pride among elected officials that seems to be catching on. And uh, so things are, things are looking up. Yeah, and I think the other the other thing that's important here, and, and the Premier often says this a lot, about the fact that New Brunswick was once considered the drive-through province. And I believe really that COVID had a very positive aspect to it when you, when you think about um, the reflection on our province as a whole. So New Brunswick wasn't typically somewhere that people were looking at to move and to settle. And that's all changed. And, you know, historically, New Brunswick was not one of those provinces where people would want to move to. They were always going to Nova Scotia or they were heading to Ontario or to Dan's Point, Alberta. But I think COVID actually demonstrated that there's a great place here to live and work and our work-life balance is extremely good. So now it's attracted a whole new demographic of people who want to come here because of that work-life balance and because of the opportunity that's here. I mean, with that comes challenges. We're seeing things in New Brunswick that we haven't been challenged with before. And I remember reading some articles during COVID. There was one article in particular that said that St. John, New Brunswick actually had the cheapest houses in Canada at that time. And that went all over social media. And I can tell you, I mean, we saw the influx of people coming into the province and people were starting to look at New Brunswick that never, ever looked at it before. And they're starting to look at some of the home prices and saying, well, look at that makes a lot of sense. And I remember being at a tractor dealership of all places. And there was a young lady there from Ontario with her mom and she was buying a new lawnmower. And she said, you know, I just moved here. She said during COVID and she said, I sold my house in Ontario and I bought a house here. It's completely paid off. I'm buying myself a new lawnmower today and I'm going to buy a tractor and I still have money left over. So I think that people are looking at that now, that work-life balance in terms of, okay, you know, you have this house in Ontario, you have these big debts, 
you can move to a place like New Brunswick and essentially just write off your debt and live a pretty decent life. So I wanted to ask you about the types of jobs that are expected to be created. So when you look at the forecast, the top three sectors for growth, not percentage change, but absolute job growth, are healthcare, retail trade, and public administration. Two of those are, are public sector and retail trade is really just a, a service industry that responds to local market demand. So I guess the question for you is, are you focusing, and maybe this is a question for the minister, Greg Turner, over at ONB, but what is the strategy and do we have the workforce for other sectors such as manufacturing, tourism, professional services, uh, IT, these sectors that are more export oriented. This is one of the issues that Don and I have been discussing a lot is we need export sectors, uh, whether it's mining or forestry or any of the natural resources, but also export oriented service industries. So I guess the question is, are you concerned that healthcare and public administration are two of the top three growth sectors? And what do we need to do to make sure we have private industry growing as well in our province? Before you go, Minister, maybe I'll just some context around the numbers. Um, so yes, David, you're right. I've, and I've got the, the sheet here in front of me around healthcare, retail. Uh, retail and wholesale trade, I'm not sure not, that's necessarily a bad thing. They are, I think that industry is certainly driven by the demographics of things, baby boomers, um, retirees, older workers, older people all need certain services. So that's contributing to the economy. And it's not necessarily public service. Um, and then, yes, public administration is in the mix there. But when you go past that, there's still, oh, a dozen or so that all have job openings that aren't public service. So there, uh, yes, there are some, those those numbers are, are there, but don't discount the fact that there's a whole bunch of other industries. When you collectively add those together, they're more than those top three. Um, and we do focus here in our department and among government. Cabinet has blessed it. We're going to go back with our priority occupations and some are public sector, but a lot are not. So we have a real emphasis on skilled trades. We have an emphasis on information technology. We have an emphasis on the forestry sector and the workers that go with that. We have an emphasis on food production, food security, food processing, fish, seafood, agriculture, that sort of thing. And then, yes, obviously we're focused on healthcare and education, among others, but we've got a lot of emphasis on, on the private sector side. Minister, I'll pass it back to you. Thanks, Dan. I think the other thing that's important here is ONB is really focused on export opportunities. And I mean, that's one of the things that's driving their mandate. The other thing that I would mention is sometimes we get so caught up with respect to um, some of these reports and you know what the stats are showing. But I can tell you some of the employers that I deal with on a regular basis, things like, you know, general labor positions that we have, you know, typically not really prioritized. That's a big priority for them. And recently, if you look at the critical worker pilot program that we've done with the federal government through the immigration program, all those employers that are part of that immigration pilot project, the number one aspect that they said that they needed right now was general labors. So sometimes we forget about the importance of those jobs as well. And because we are, you know, manufacturing uh, forest-driven, uh, resource sector. Uh, these jobs often require people to come in at those entry-level positions who typically, you know, want to start there and maybe work their way through the system. But we can't forget about the importance of those jobs. Absolutely. Without those jobs, the economy grinds to a halt. We wanted to shift and talk a little bit about the construction and trades workforce. Um, we're seeing all this effort to push, uh, to make it more lucrative to build, right? The federal government has eliminated the HST on uh, rental housing. And I guess the premier of Nova Scotia just announced the provincial HST is going to be taken off as well as 10%. So that's a 15% savings on the development of rental housing in Nova Scotia. 
but we still have this shortage of construction workers. So I don't know, you make it really easy to build, but then you don't have enough workers. So we'd like to hear, and I've had a little talk with Dan already, you guys are doing some very interesting things to grow the construction workforce. Maybe you could give us a sense of what those initiatives are. And are you optimistic that we're going to be able to have the workforce needed to build the housing demand? By my estimate, we're about 11,000 short in New Brunswick right now, just in the last, since the pandemic. And there's a big demand heading out into the future. So what are you doing to make sure we have that workforce? And are you optimistic about the future? Yeah, maybe Minister, I'll just talk about a little bit of the numbers. So David, um, as you mentioned, we do forecast the opening. So I've got the the number in front of me in the construction sector, generally speaking, 10,000 job openings over the next 10 years. So let's say that's on an average 1,000 a year. Um, we do have some ambitious plans to recruit 1,000 skilled trades workers. We are focused on those ones that matter most to building residences. So think plumbing, carpenters, electricians, bricklayers, roofers, laborers, that sort of thing. Um, and we're having some very interesting discussions. I just looked at a project plan this morning, came across my desk in our department, where we're building out that plan as how are we gonna do that? And as we've already discussed, a lot of that's gonna have to come from outside New Brunswick because we didn't have enough babies, we got an aging workforce, that sort of thing. So we have some ambitious plans on international recruitment. It's great to have the immigration team back at Pedal. They were here before, they're back here now. The, my lead on that is just two doors over from my office where I'm sitting right now. Um, and we're going to integrate the working MB team, the immigration team. Our, we also have in our department apprenticeship and skilled trade. So we have a lot of leverage over how we certify, how we register apprentices, how we train apprentices, how we pre-qualify skilled trades people from other countries, which is tends not to be a simple process, just like nurses and doctors and lawyers and accountants. You're trying to get someone certified in a trade and they're coming from another country where the system is different. So we've got some plans to... I'd like to see us actually have a presence overseas, some debate about where, what countries, what regions we should be in. I'd like to see us pre-qualify either Red Seal tradespeople or pre-qualify them people at a certain level of apprenticeship so they can land here, land with an employer and say, look, I've already been assessed by the government crowd and they say I'm a level two apprentice in plumbing, I'm ready to roll, let's get you connected. And then again, because we've got within our levers, within Minister Dunn's portfolios, immigration, skilled trades, working MB, community colleges, universities, private colleges, private universities, all of that's here. So it makes it relatively easy to connect the dots and connect the people. Um, so yeah, I would say our goal is a thousand people a year, largely from overseas, via a presence overseas, via a partnership within our, our immigration team. And I know the minister will have some thoughts and she may want to speak to some specifics because there's even some stuff happening next week. Yeah, no, that's all great stuff. I think the other thing that's really important for us to talk about here today is, you know, it's great to attract people, but it's another thing to retain them. And that's always been, you know, the age old question with respect to marginalized groups and underrepresented groups, especially in the skilled trades. And I can tell you during my tenure in Newfoundland, I was quite proud of the project that I was on, which we were upscaling to about 23% women in skilled trades. Trending across the country, we know it's around 4%. And that number hasn't really moved. Uh, that's 
substantially. So I can tell you, based upon my history in some of these projects, that there's really great best practices that we can implement. I'm not going to talk about all of them today because I think it's important for us to talk about some of the stuff that we're focused on with respect to that. And I know, Dan, within our department right now, we're doing great work with the First Nations communities. We've got more First Nation apprentices now than we've ever had in a long time. Um, and we're doing tremendous work around that. I think the other thing that's important for us to talk about is women in skilled trades and the, the programs that we have, uh, whether it's New Boots or working with Helen Savoie over at MAPS to talk about uh, these marginalized groups getting into apprenticeships. And I think it's really important for all of us to understand, you know, what is our strategy around not the attraction piece, because that's fairly simple to attract people when you talk about a good job, especially something that's going to be stable, where they're going to make a good pay and great health and welfare and pension benefits. But the key really is around the retention piece. And I can tell you during my time in Newfoundland uh, with the Employers Association, we really had a great strategy and the strategy was based upon number one, let's set our targets, let's measure those targets, let's mentor folks and let's make people accountable. And you have to do that. And if you don't do that, you're not gonna see a change in the numbers. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this trend of 4% across the country, which typically doesn't change very much. Yeah, and Minister, I'll add to, to your point some some numbers for David and Don's listeners. The um, our target is a 21% increase in those five or six skilled trades around housing. Our target is 21%. We're at 14% right now overall on apprenticeship. And uh, maybe it's because I'm not there. I used to be in the, the director of apprenticeship in my time 10, 15 years ago. There were about 3,500 apprentices in New Brunswick. There's 5,200 plus today in apprenticeship in New Brunswick, which is again fantastic. And apprenticeship is one of those great things that's literally tied directly to the labor market. You can't be an apprentice without the job. You can be a student at UMB without a job, but you can't be an apprentice without a job. It's one of the, I, I think, best designed post-secondary programs that we really should push into other other industries. Um, and then my last one to the minister's point about First Nations. So we had less than 50 uh, self-identified First Nation apprentices in our system. We've more than doubled that. We've got a great guy who has built an excellent relationship with all the First Nations across the province. So we are well over 100 uh, self-identified First Nation apprentices in New Brunswick, which again, I don't think any jurisdiction has doubled their number in the last couple of years. And again, we want to double it again to 200 and then to 400 and carry on, but some some really good numbers just to add to the minister's points. I want to just uh, switch directions, if you don't mind. I'd like to find out a little bit more about your study NB initiative. What can you tell us about that initiative? Maybe, Dan, if you're, if you're okay, I'll start with that. I think that this is a wonderful initiative because now we have our eight publicly funded institutions that are actually working collaboratively to attract students to our region. Rather than competing um, with each other, they're actually working together um, as partners to uh, demonstrate the value that we have here in the province of New Brunswick. And I think that this is actually something that's unprecedented. Typically, you see a lot of these institutions, not just in New Brunswick, but other places all competing with each other. So I think this is going to be a wonderful partnership. And the primary focus is really going to be what does New Brunswick have to offer students? And, you know, what does our future look like together in terms of working around that educational piece and making sure that we're attracting the right students and that they want to stay here and they want to build their lives here? Okay, so uh, this just uh, this program just got uh, started. Is 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 it being funded uh, uh, by the government, or is it being funded by the post secondary institutions? 
Yeah, maybe Minister, I could take that one. The um, we do have some funding into it. It's we're plus or minus uh, uh, probably a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand bucks. But the concept there was really not not for it to be this big. Everyone put money into something. It's focused right. on results. And for the right. first time, again, first time in my career, um, you've got a cohort of post-secondary leaders, and I'm talking, you know, the CEOs, exec directors <laughs> of, of the presidents of these institutions that are all working together. Um, and I think it's fantastic. And I, I want to call them out by name, like Pierre at CCMB, Mary at NBCC, Noman at, at Stu. We're missing a president at Mount A. They're working on that. But Denis at UDAM and Paul at UMB. Again, we went to them and said, look, we got to work together on this. We've been talking about this for 15 years, about uh, collective New Brunswick, work together on post-secondary, attract students to the region. And I'll add Carrie, uh, Carrie Nolan at NBCCD, College of Craft and Design, and uh, uh, the College of Forest Technology, who are in the process of identifying a new, a new CEO there too. But again, first time everyone's like, yeah, we're in. And I've heard all the excuses over years. Well, we're different. Well, you're in different regions. Well, we go to this market and you go to that market. Well, we can't really work together. None of them did that this time. And again, to their credit, they're all relatively new, but I think, and you know, there's a list of people for your, your, uh, for your listeners, for your next round of podcasts is grab all those post-secondary presidents and leaders and bring them in here and talk about the fact that they are collaborating, that they're growing enrollment and they're attracting international students, all that sort of thing. So again, I think that's fantastic. So Don, not a lot of government money necessarily in it, but yes, we are committed to it, but so more importantly, so are the institutions and everyone's working together and I think it's it's been a it's been a great initiative and the, the minister we were fortunate to have the minister kick that off just a few weeks ago yeah we've actually had a several post-secondary institutions on the podcast dan if you had been listening <laughs> <laughs> anyway I, uh, have, uh, I have caught them don but i'd bring them all at the same time and say listen yeah. what are well, all you guys doing to work together uh, but, you know, I just saw some recent uh, data that was really interesting. I'm actually, uh, you know, as part of the research for the book. Uh, and uh, in the last 10 years, the number of international students has, I, I might have these numbers wrong, but they've gone from like 11,000 to 21,000 in 10 years, almost 100%. And uh, Dave and I have been actually big advocates of this as a as an attraction uh, population attraction strategy for the uh, province. And I've mentioned this numbers of times in the past that when I still had my business, we did some research that indicated um, sixty percent or more. I think it's sixty three percent of uh, foreign students intended to stay in Canada after graduation. Not only that, but stay in the communities where they were educated, you know, so it's obviously a big opportunity. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, that there's coordination going on in New Brunswick. Oh, again, one of, you've got a lot of topics to talk about here. But another one that we want to get your feedback on is the need to increase uh, the number of nurses in the province. This is a pro this is a problem across the country again. But, you know, what are your what is your department doing to boost the pipeline for nurses for in the province of uh, New Brunswick? Yeah, thanks, Don. I'll, I'll, I'll tackle your nurse one, but I just want to throw out because I think this is a fantastic number. And David might remember from his days at Chief Economist, we used to convert on the international student piece. We used to convert 250 international students into permanent residence through various immigration streams. This mm. year, as of today, we've con we've converted 1,753 this calendar year. Well, wow. yeah, that's we've great. We've used 250. Right. To your point, international students want to study here, but they generally want to stay here. 
And there's another one for you and your listeners. Get the federal government on the line and start talking about how they screen international students, because I mm -hmm. think we're still stuck a little bit in that old idea of we don't want inter international students can come, drop their money, but then we want them to leave because they're going to take our jobs. We got to get past that discussion and encourage international students to stay. And it would be great if we re could recruit them with the institution and the employer on day one. Here's your acceptance to the institution and here's your conditional job offer on you complete, you got a job, and then here's your immigration papers to go with it, all tied together. Dan, we must be related. I've been talking about that for a long time. <laughs> so on to, on to nursing, Don. Uh, what are we doing? I'm, I got a long list that we won't have time, time to address, but I'm gonna give you a couple of highlights. We now have an internationally educated nurse recruitment unit at the Department of Health. Their target is hundreds of INs. I can give you more details on that if you'd like. UMB has just done in a partnership with a uh, university in India where they deliver UMB's nursing program in India. Those people can come direct to, to New Brunswick. Uh, we have an agreement between France, the country of France, and, and um, based off the Quebec model where you can study in France, come here once, you're once you complete your bachelor nursing program there. We have a private university out of Bangor, Maine, who's coming to town, Beale University. We're going to offer a nursing program. Alton College in, your, in David's region of Moncton is putting together a bachelor nursing program. We have a performance-based agreement with the, with the two, two UDAM and UMB to grow their number of nursing graduates, and, and we will cut them a check for 35000 bucks for each one they produce over a certain level. We have a step-up-to-nursing model that we launched not too long ago where you you complete your Bachelor of Nursing, you either progress from PSW to LPN, LPN to RN, while you're at work, you get paid while you're in school and while you're at work, it's all it's all built together. So you don't leave, you don't get laid off, you don't have to worry about, you know, work schedule, school schedule, it's all done for you. We got a we got a initial project there with both CCMB, UDM and NBCC and UMB, um, one in Bathurst, one in St. John. We've been working with the Nurses Association. They've adjusted their practice in terms of how they accept internationally educated nurses. They did in one month. Uh, they did, they approved more nurses in one month recently than they did all of last year to accept nurses into New Brunswick. And then I have more stuff, but I'll stop there. There are just <laughs> wow, that's, that's a lot. things happening around nursing. And everyone, again, kudos to CCMB, NBCC, UMB, UDM, Nurses Association, Department of Health, Vitalite, Horizon, Petal, um, everyone rowing in the same direction and trying to get stuff done. Like I say, there, there's a fantastic group of leaders in New Brunswick that are working together. And Dan, we have the condensed program as well at UMBSJ that we just actually kicked off here recently. The other thing that I would say to Dan's point, I do want to thank all the, the individuals that you listed, Dan, but I also want to make sure that we have special kudos going out to the Nursing Association because, as you know, the foreign credential recognition piece um, and the legislation that we passed to make sure that we're able to work through some of those challenges that we've typically seen uh, for newcomers trying to struggle to get employment in what they've been skilled and trained to do has been a real challenge for them. And that's part of the key to retention. So thank you to the Nursing Association for working with us on this. Yeah, Minister, it's amazing that, that a lot of these leaders know each other by first name and have their cell and send them a text message to get stuff done. And Nurses Association is one of those. Denise LeBlanc Wow is the CEO there. She's recently recently uh, taken that role. Uh, Nathan Wickett is the president. I play hockey with him. He's on my hockey team. It's a small world in New Brunswick, but when people want to work <laughs> together, we can get a lot of stuff done. 
Minister, you talked earlier about general laborers that we did want to ask you about manufacturing sector in particular. We had Michael Graydon on here. Uh, he's the CEO of the Food, Health and Consumer Products of Canada Association a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying that we should be manufacturing a lot more food products in Canada. We've seen a number of international firms moving out of Canada, moving frozen pizza and skippy peanut butter, if you can believe it, out of the country. Uh, he'd like to see more, but he says the provincial governments across the country aren't particularly interested in food manufacturing, and one of the reasons is a lack of labor for that sector. So I'd like to ask, not specifically about food manufacturing per se, but what are your thoughts around the manufacturing sector and the fact that that sector continues, even as it gets more technologically literate, it still needs a lot of assembly line or a lot of manufacturing labor workers uh, are we still in that business? Do we do we care about manufacturing in New Brunswick? And what are we doing to make sure we have enough workers for that sector? We absolutely do. And I think that COVID has taught us that we really need to focus on the manufacturing sector. Uh, we were at the mercy, as you know, of many um, entities that couldn't really provide things during COVID. And this has really, uh, you know, made us understand that we need to really focus on the manufacturing sector. Anything that we can grow, anything that we can produce, anything that we can move in New Brunswick, I think that that needs to be the focus. And I can tell you there's a lot of work to do in the manufacturing sector, but we do have a focus on the manufacturing sector. And to your point with respect to general labor positions, what we're seeing in the manufacturing sector, because we have this labor shortage, we need to really turn our attention now to productivity. What are the innovative ways that we can actually demonstrate that we can turn these products out? And, you know, in situations where we don't have a labor supply, does that look like new machinery, for an example? And I know over at OMB, we actually have a productivity fund for this very reason. So we go out and we meet with the clients. RPC typically goes out and does the same thing. We'll meet as a group and we'll say, look at what is your issue here with respect to labor supply? Let us understand your business. Let us figure out a formula for us to work through this. And I can tell you recently, I did a field trip with RPC and we went out into the field of a certain restaurant in the province who wants to grow their capacity and their biggest number one issue was around labor supply. And we said, well, let's really take a look at what you're doing right now and let's figure out a model that will work with you. So whether that's devising new machinery or devising new ways of doing things, we have to focus on that manufacturing sector, but we have to recognize the fact that we don't have the labor supply to meet all those needs. So what is the innovation? What is a productivity product piece that we're doing to make sure that we close in that gap. And I think that at some point we need to talk about productivity. And I can tell you the sector that I come from, which is a construction sector, this is something that's really a priority for us. You know, how do we capitalize on making sure that we are the most productive, that we are focused on manufacturing, and we're closing those gaps on labor supply? Because if you look at what's happening right now across the country, and I'm looking at this, this project that's going on in BC, for an example, a lot of the components are being built elsewhere and being shipped into Canada uh, because of the fact that we haven't been in the manufacturing industry. We haven't been maybe so productive. We haven't been innovative. These are all things that we have to look at. And I think the manufacturing sector from my perspective and working at ONB, that is a priority for this province. And we need to, to make sure that we continue to make it a priority and to figure out solutions for that sector to grow and recognize the fact that labor supply is a big issue for them. Yeah, Minister, I just got three three points I'll add to that. David, your comment about the, the food side of things. Um, our colleagues at the Department of Agriculture, Aquaculture and Fisheries do have a food security strategy in underway. Um, to help address the point that I think we produce 2,000% of the seafood we need 
along with French fries as well. Uh, but we produce something like 10% of fruit and vegetables that we need. So COVID's brought that to light and there's a strategy in place. So that might be another another topic for another day around food, food security. Uh, my second point tied to this one is on the manufacturing sector, there's a group called Marshalls who are setting up in Greater Moncton. Um, who are a defense company based out of the UK. So they came they came to town not too long ago, and they said, hey, uh, New Brunswick in Canada, do you know we have 653 apprenticeship programs in Europe, and you guys have 54? Why can't we uh, work on that? And uh, we said, we're in. So we've got a performance-based agreement, long-term, to my point earlier, with Marshall, Marshall Canada, where they've got to focus on three areas. So a product, like a manufacturing production worker type program where it's workplace based, where you get paid to work and you get paid while you're in school. They've got one around an engineering tech type of role. And they've even got one, they've even convinced some of our folks here to do an apprenticeship based engineering program. Like we're talking bachelor of engineering workplace based program. So they've got those three things are, are underway and we pay them based on the number of people to get and the number of results they get and it's a long-term agreement. And my last one, just to point out, the minister's point about productivity and I think someone mentioned innovation and that sort of thing. The minister didn't mention this, but she's also the Minister of Innovation and the Research and Productivity Council and we, have, uh, we are working actively with all the innovation players to put together a more uh, concerted effort around innovation. So thank the Innovation Foundation, Research Productivity Council, Research MB, all the research institutes. We've been having excellent discussions with them, and we hope to get get in front of cabinet and uh, hope to have a long, again, long term, like five, 10, 15 year type of plan to that, and uh, and move that one forward. So that should help on the on the, and that'll have an export manufacturing focus among other things. Thanks. Maybe just one example that I would also bring up is that um, there is a uh, aerospace uh, company in Moncton, and one of the concerns that they had was around labor supply. So they actually built, um, with our assistance, a piece of equipment. So when they leave at the end of their shift, at the end of the night, uh, that piece of machinery is actually turning out these widgets all night long. And I think it's really important for us to think about how that actually applies to the manufacturing sector because we do see that labor gap. We see that labor shortage. This innovation piece is going to be crucial in terms of moving the manufacturing sector forward. So I had a question here for you on international students, but I think we've covered that pretty holistically. So I'll turn it back to Don. He has a very specific question for you and then another question and then maybe one more before we wrap up. Yeah, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, some recent talk about uh, international students' permits being, uh, you know, curtailed because concerns about housing. But, you know, I, I'd rather ask a, 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 another question about the, the, the Premier's um, plan to hit a million population by 2040 or earlier. Uh, you know, we, uh, both David and I uh, believe that uh, one of the driving reasons that we have a better economy is population growth which is something we haven't had in this region you know since the 90s when baby boomers stop having kids um you know and 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 so it creates it's a, 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 a list to the economy so i, I guess I, the question is really you know thinking about a million people by 2040 you know what does this do to the uh, workforce forecast i'm sure it's in in it's included, Dan, in your forecast, but, you know, um, that creates a lot of demand, right? A lot of demand for jobs. Housing being like, you know, one of the biggest ones, obviously, but, you know, more schools, you've already talked about that, probably more hospitals, you know, the, like the infrastructure has to keep up with that growth. It's going to create a lot of demand. 
you know, how confident are you that your forecast has, has in, in incorporated that uh, growth in, in your plans? Thanks, Don. Maybe, uh, Minister, if you're good, I'll, I'll go with this one first. And again, your your listeners won't see it, but I've got the demographic chart on in front of me. And it's literally taken a 90-degree turn straight up in New Brunswick. It was flat for 20, 30 years kind of thing. Um, and it's on a 90 degree and it's going, it's going straight up, which again, to your point, I agree, David, Don, um, I think population growth is, is, is a key to our success as a, as an economy, society, all sorts of things. So who knows where that'll go? I think, uh, the premier's got a, got a bold, you know, a bold goal and he's, he's not afraid to set a bold goal and ask his team and public service and ministers to help meet that target. Um, so all hands on deck to, to pursue that. Um, and I think we'll, we're, we're, we're tied in. We've asked universities to grow their enrollment tied to that. The Department of Education is dealing with growing enrollment there. And you talked about schools. Um, our, our labor force is growing tied to that. Our employers and that sort of thing appreciate the growth. Um, but as you say, there are challenges to come with that around housing, around services for citizens. Um, but it also feeds, feeds government coffers to some extent in terms of revenue, mm. taxes, all that sort of thing. So, so there, there are a number of balls all in the air, but I think we're doing a pretty good job at trying to, trying to connect them. And I'm sure the minister has some thoughts. Yeah, no, I think those are all really good points. I think the other thing that's important for us to understand is that when we actually go and lobby the federal government with respect to our allocations and numbers around immigration, one of the things that they always bring up is that, look, you have to keep up. So if you want us, if the expectation is for us to increase your allocations uh, in terms of immigrants, then you're going to have to keep up with respect to the infrastructure, whether that's health care, uh, whether that's school, whether that's housing. So all of these things have to really uh, be integrated and we have to make sure that we're keeping, you know, our eye on all of those particular um, initiatives. And I can tell you that we're working right now with the housing minister. So never before in the history of the province have we had an actual minister dedicated to housing. So she's working on a consistent basis with all the not-for-profits, with the private sector developers, with the construction industry, with the construction association, with the employers associations. Everybody's coming together to really take a look at this problem and try to figure out how do we prepare for this growth that we see. And we've been doing a lot of that. And I think, Dan, you've got some information there with respect to the housing starts, which which I believe are unprecedented as well, and also the construction permits that you know are unprecedented. But I think you you bring up a very valuable point here because I can tell you as the previous co-chair of the forum for ministers responsible for immigration across the country, uh, the federal minister would often say to me, you know, you want these numbers to increase? Well, you have to demonstrate that you're actually going to be able to support the numbers that you're asking for. And I believe this year with our allocation, we got over a 66 or 60 percent increase. So our numbers now are out around 5,500, I believe, for this allocation. So with that comes challenges. But I think we all have to make sure that we keep our eye on the prize, which is we want those newcomers coming here. It's a great thing for us to have, contributes to our economy, our tax base, um, our demographic. We see a younger population, something that we haven't seen a medium decrease in, in our population since the 60s. These are all really good things, but I think we all have to be working together to make sure that we can um, overcome those challenges around all the things we talked about with respect to keeping up with that population growth. And if we don't do that, then we're going to see a decrease in the future. So it's imperative on all of us to make sure that we're focused on that to prepare for this growth and to make sure that we're set up for success in the future. And I think, Minister, to your point about uh, immigration and retention in particular, 
Um, I've got the numbers here in front of me. If I, I look at the last 15 years, so say 2005 to 2020-ish versus the last year or so, our 10-year retention rate is up from 48% to 51% among newcomers. Our five-year retention rate is up from 60% to 65%. And our one and three-year are hovering about the same. But I think those long-term numbers are really important because it's one thing, it's fairly easy for someone to come land here and stay a year. But three years, five years, 10 years out, that's the trickier piece where we got to try and, to the minister's point and the federal government's point, we'll give you the numbers, but if, you don't, if they don't stay, what's the point? So our numbers are, are definitely on the rise. And then to the minister's point about housing, and I think David's probably more of an expert on this and got better numbers than I do. But when I look at our housing starts over the last, again, the last 20 years, I mean, I look at 2015, we were doing 1,900 housing starts. And in 2022, we did 4,600. And I'm with you, David, on the fact that we got to grow that to, I don't know what it is, six, seven, eight thousand housing starts to meet the need. And again, back to our discussion with skilled trades and some offshore uh, um, projects that we're going to undertake to pre-qualify and bring tra skilled trades people in. We uh, we hope to support that effort. That leads nicely into our final question here uh, today, um, and that is about how you how you do retain those newcomers. What what is the role of of your department, but of communities, of settlement agencies? What do we need to be doing that, to ensure, like the number one retention characteristic is a job that's aligned with people's skills. And you've already told us some of the work being done to align the newcomers to jobs that match their skills. And I think that's critical. But the second thing is they need to feel at home in the community and they need to have housing, they need to have services, they need to integrate into the community. What should we be doing to ensure we can retain, you're never gonna get 90, 100% Dan, but we should get up around 70% if, we're, if we get this right. So what do we need to do to make sure, and what, do, what are you doing to make sure we can retain as many of these newcomers as possible? So maybe Dan, if you're okay, I'll start out with this one. So I think it's imperative that we recognize the importance of the multicultural associations and the settlement agencies. So we are in direct contact with them on a daily basis with respect to this particular issue because we want to make sure that these folks actually do stay here. And what we hear from a lot of the newcomer communities is that they, they want that community connection. So I think it's imperative upon us um, as people who are living here to make sure that we figure out ways to integrate them, uh, whether it's in our schools, whether it's in extracurricular activities, whether it's in after school programs, whether it's you know with initiatives that are going on in the community. That's one of the number one things that I'm hearing when they come to visit me is that, look, at, we want to be part of your community. The other thing I think it's really important for us to understand about newcomers um, is that they're actually volunteering at, at uh, record levels, more so maybe sometimes in the domestic population. They want to be integrated. They want to be working together. They want to be included in all the stuff that we're doing. And I think the more that we do that, the more that they're going to build those connections within our communities and want to stay here. The other thing that I'm hearing from them is that they would like to have access to some of the typical things that they would be used to in the countries that they're coming from their home base. So whether that's foods that they're looking for in the communities. And I know that some of the newcomers will say to me, particularly in St. John, that they sometimes have to drive to Moncton to get some of the food supplies that they would like to see on the shelves here. And I think that some of the some of the larger grocers are actually starting to see that as well. Like if you go into the super store now you'll have all these international food sections which I think is great but I think that everybody now understands that look at we need to really focus on what are the things that are going to make newcomers feel that they're part of our community and housing is obviously a big one and what I'm seeing and I can say this you know emphatically in my writing 
a lot of the newcomers that are coming in have larger families than we do typically. So they're looking for larger units, maybe to accommodate four or five children. And I think that that needs to be something that we're focused on in the future. What do these new housing strategies look like with respect to what these particular units are going to be built like? It's really important for us to understand that as well and to make sure that we're focused on overcoming some of those things. Um, because right now, housing is in short supply, but at the same time, are we actually set up to accommodate a family of five, for an example? And that's what we see a lot of. And I'll go back to what your point was earlier, David, with respect to a job, imperative, crucial, there's no doubt about it. But the other thing that I think that we need to understand as a community and as a province, we really need to work on this foreign credential recognition piece. You know, we see a lot of folks that are coming into the province that are highly skilled individuals. And they will take opportunities that are very close to the careers that they have chosen to be trained in. And they have no issue with respect to doing that, but they do want to ultimately move towards what they've been skilled and trained to do. And I do see a lot of frustration on that end, um, that these folks are very well trained and maybe they can't actually um, capitalize on jobs that typically they would you know, be doing in their own home countries. And I think that the more that we focus on this foreign credential recognition piece and overcoming some of those challenges, that's going to be the key to retention, uh, David and Dawn. And I think that we need to come together to figure out how do we how do we make sure that that's something that we prioritize? Because if you're a trained physician, you're not going to stay in the province of New Brunswick and drive a taxi. You want to be able to do the work that you've been trained to do. And we see that time and time again. Yeah, and David and Don, just to build on the minister's comments, um, she's she's been in the she's actively been in the immigration game. She kind of it came with her when she got pedal. She brought immigration. Um, you only need to look at her LinkedIn account to tell she's very actively involved in multicultural groups, immigration events, newcomer events, um, all sorts of things. If you if you scroll through her her posts, um, but I just did two comments and then I'm gonna have two questions for you, Don and Dave. Um, one is I, one comment is that I'm still waiting for, and I, I don't quite understand why it hasn't happened yet, but why a municipality in New Brunswick hasn't built a cricket field. We build rinks, we build basketball courts, we build ball fields, we build soccer fields. When when is the cricket field coming? I've heard that all over the place that and and we've repurposed soccer fields and why don't why doesn't someone build a cricket field? It's an international sport. We got the soccer field, but cricket's an international sport. And I think a lot of newcomers would appreciate a municipality to put their money where their mouth is and build a cricket field. That's just a sidebar. Um, a second example, we have a lady here from Nigeria. She has so much free time because she doesn't spend five hours a day commuting like she did in Nigeria that she opened up an African grocery store on the side. She works in our in our financial services branch. She's a great lady, and she's built. She's she's opened up an Afri African market again because she had so much free time. She used to commute five hours a day to and from work in Nigeria. And so, great example. And my two questions for you guys is: What do you think about a credential recognition fund? So, to the minister's point, we never ever let that skilled newcomer drive a taxi. We say, no, 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 no. Listen, we get a fund for you. We're going to tie you to the workplace. We're going to sort of that credential recognition stuff. You are not to drive a taxi. No offense to the taxi industry, that's a service we need, but I don't want doctors and lawyers and accountants driving a taxi ever. So what about a credential recognition fund? And then to those newcomers who come and to the minister's point, have a hard time finding a house that, that, that has room for five kids, what about a newcomer settlement loan for newcomers who come? I don't think they want to hand out. I think if we said, listen, here's a loan for 20,000 bucks, you can pay it off over the next 20 years and maybe interest free, um, but we, we want you to succeed when you get here and we're willing to give you a little help. What do you think of that? 
So I'll, I'll jump in. I'll say yes and yes. On the first one, I've said all along, these, these internationally trained folks should, should be right in the workforce immediately when they arrive. Like nurses, internationally trained nurses now, they can get a job while they're getting their upgrading of their training. They can work in the sector and then become uh, registered nurses. We should be doing that with all as many of these international groups as possible, even doctors. There's no reason why a doctor, internationally trained doctor, couldn't work alongside of a New Brunswick doctor short term, right? And do some of the basic stuff while they're getting their upgrades. So so kudos to you for thinking both of those. They both make a lot of sense to me. Don Mills. 100% agree. You know, and, uh, you know, this, both are major problems. And I just want to add one other thing, Minister, and this is part of your strategy for immigration. Uh, we, we find that uh, communities that, that have created critical mass in, in their, in their, you know, communities are more likely to retain people. So when you when you recruit people, you know, you have to think about, do we have enough that they can create their own churches yeah. and their own grocery stores? That's really important, just as a side comment. Absolutely, Don. I agree 100% with you, 100%. Minister Dunn and Deputy Minister Mills, thank you so much for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Glad we could have this discussion. Thanks so much. Listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.